You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Now before we get into anything else, I want to say thank you so much to everybody who has been reading and reviewing like on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Like I know on Apple Podcasts, if you write something in the review, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter at all. Like the content itself is irrelevant, but like just by writing something, it like pushes you up the algorithm somehow. I don't know. It It's Apple Podcasts magic. But uh, if anyone would like to rate and review five stars, that would be totes amazing. Can't believe I just used the phrase totes amazing, but we're just gonna we're just gonna let it slide, I think. Yeah? Cool. But like you can you can say anything. You can say your favorite figure from history. You can tell me your favorite colour. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all good. But yeah, um I've been putting stuff together anyway, sidebar. For October, because I'm trying to get like spooky stuff sorted. And my first live show in Dublin is gonna be next month. I'm just getting the details all sorted out for it and my mouth is so sore right now I've just jumped three conversations in less than a minute but yeah my um my jaw is really sore because I was reading a bedtime story and we're actually reading Roald Dahl right now uh Danny Champion of the World and before this I was reading David Williams uh Codename Bananas and I keep doing it to myself I keep giving characters that talk a lot really strain straining voices because like uncle said in um coding bananas i made him talk like this like really really gruff because he's meant to be like a cockney and i was like my dad when he used to smoke too much oh what and then i was like okay i'll make something different you know because usually i would do a gruffalo voice and the gruffalo is always really scottish which is basically the same as the english voice i just did bit Scottish like it's all from the same part and I was like I'll do something different this time for Danny champion of the world and I'm doing Danny's dad voice and I'm not doing an impression of a Yorkshire person no 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 I am doing an impression of Michael Palin from Monty Python as a Yorkshire person hey up Chuck there's trouble up mill oh I wasn't expecting the Spanish Inquisition Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, but the um, the <laughs> it's the Michael Palin. Like, what's wrong with her? She's got huge tracts of land, but like it's really awkward to hold my mouth in that position, especially when I have to do like pages of speech, and I'm like, oh no, and I was like doing this voice, and then suddenly it became Welsh. Like, what's happening here? And then it's kind of scousy. Like, the accent just was not flowing. And the kids were like, why is their voice changing? I'm like, um, sorry. <laughs> but my jaw is so sore. But I shall power through because I care about you. And I want you to know this story. So because I was reading Roald Dahl, I was like, I'm going to cover Roald Dahl. Because from October, I want to cover lots of sort of like spooky and creepy macabre even I want to like keep in that sort of vein 
I just want to do like spooky stuff for October because why the fuck not? Let's have a theme because I can. And then some people want some reduxes of old stuff I did that has absolutely shocking audio, by the way. But I am going to do that. It's going to be fine. I will make it work. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jabber jabber and fact me. In fact, you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are Meet Roll Dal by Francis E. Ruffin, Roll Dal, the Champion Storyteller by Andrea Shavik, The Irregulars, Roll Dal and the British Spy Ring in Wartime Washington by Jeanette Conant, Boy, Tales of Childhood by Roll Dal. Roald Dahl, a biography by Jeremy Triglone. Storyteller, the authorised biography of Roald Dahl by Donald Sturrock. And of course we have our favourites, biography.com and history.com. I use it uncomfortably. Good, then let's begin. Roald Dahl was born on the 13th of September 1916 in Clandalf, in Cardiff, in the country of Wales. I almost said County Wales, because I live in Ireland and my habit is to just be like, County Donegal, County Fermanagh. No, no, Wales, the country, the country. So he is the child of two Norwegian immigrants. Now his father, Harald Dahl, he was a self-made man and quite wealthy shipbroker. So he had emigrated from Norway and moved to Wales with his first wife, Marie Boran Gresset. And they have two children together, Hélène Marguerite and Louis. Now Marie passes away in 1907. I'm not sure from what, but she does. So his dad is widowed with two children and surprisingly enough, doesn't actually get married for another four years. Like he doesn't get remarried. And this is a time where blended families were very much a thing. And him being, well, a wealthy man, a man of prospect, remarrying would have been like very much the thing to do. But he waited to do so. And he ended up marrying Sophie Magdalene, who was a daughter of just a lot of rich Norwegian people, effectively. And so they get married in 1911. She emigrates to the UK and and they go on to have five children together Astri, Alfield, Asta, Elsa and Roald. Nope, that's my mistake. Um Ellen Marguerite is also known as Elsa, so that's one person. So yeah, he has four sisters and one brother. Yeah, okay. Nope, correction. I'll correct it myself. It's all good. And they have siblings. Fuck off no, right? They're just siblings. You don't have to make this weird divide by being like, oh, they're half this and half that. No. It doesn't matter, right? They're still siblings. Get over it, okay? Okay. So Roald Dahl, he's bilingual. He speaks Norwegian growing up, speaks it with his siblings, and he speaks it all through his life. So he's got Norwegian and English. Did he ever learn Welsh? I don't fucking know, to be honest with you. I'm not sure he did. I mean, he probably could have picked it up fairly easily because he was already bilingual and generally when you have more than one language it's easier to pick up more just because of, of your brain does a thing oh that was really intelligent really really insightful there your brain does a thing yes it's like pattern recognition or something like that there is a term for it i just don't know what it is but dal and his siblings they're all raised in like the norwegian lutheran church and they're all, like, baptised at the Norwegian church in Cardiff. I don't know how many Norwegians ended up in Cardiff that there was a Norwegian church. Like, how many people do need to emigrate from, like, a country before, like, a church gets established? Because, like, there must be a lot, right? There's got to be. There has to be. So... Dal's childhood is just fucking marred with tragedy, like, throughout. So in 1920, when Dal is just three years old, his sister Astri 
dies from appendicitis and she's only seven. And then a few weeks later, again, he's only three. A few weeks later, Harold Dahl dies of pneumonia. He's 57 years old and he's gone. He's kaput. Which must have been a really fucking stressful time for his mum because she's pregnant at this point with the youngest sister, Asta. So she loses a child. She loses her husband. She's got all these kids to deal with. And then she gives birth to her youngest child who's never going to know her father. Enrolled so young, it's unlikely that he'll have any memories of him because three is a really young age. Like it's... Like, it's massive, um, like, developmentally, but memory? Bit thin there. Wee bit thin. So when Harold passes away, he leaves an estate of, what was it, £158,917 and 10 shillings. Which, in today's money, is about £7 million. Like... It was a fair chunk, you know, pretty decent. Now, Sophie Magdalene Dahl, she decides that she's going to stay in the UK. She's not going to, like, bugger off back to Norway because Harold, he always wanted his kids to have a UK education because at the time it was one of the better educations like, available in the world. And so the Dahls stay in the UK. But it's not all tragedy for Dal, when he's six years old, he gets to meet the Beatrix Potter. He adored Beatrix Potter. And that's the author of Peter Rabbit. Um, and I think she actually ended up writing Peter Rabbit because she wanted to paint, like, fields and shit. I think what it was, if I'm not mistaken, like, she was sent to the countryside, like, for her health. Because, you know, Victorians, they were sending you to the countryside or the seaside for your maladies. And so she would paint these little watercolours of of like field mice and rabbits and things. And that's how the concept of of the little, little cheeky, little mischievous Peter Rabbit was created. And I think, was Peter Rabbit the first licensed character? Uh, someone tweet me and DM me. Let me know the information. One of you will know. So Dal was educated in the UK. He went to the cathedral school in Clandaff. And things didn't go well for him there. I mean, you know, academically fine. But he really wasn't keen on corporal punishment, which, you know, in the 1920s was just how they did things. I'm not saying it's right. I think it's fucking awful. But it's just what they did. So... He gets um, he gets caned in 1924 for what he calls the Great Mouse Plot of 1924. Like him and four and his friends. Because they get a dead mouse and they put it in a jar of gobstoppers in Mrs Pratchett's sweet shop. Now, I'm not condoning putting rodent cadavers into anybody's candy jars. However... In 1924, it does seem like the height of excitement a bunch of eight-year-olds can get up to. Like, if you ever read old boarding school um, and private school books, like um, St. Clair's, um, Alloy Towers by Enid Blyton, and things like that, pranks are very much just a way of being, and they're usually kind of silly and funny, and there's not a lot of malice behind it. Whereas a lot of modern pranks, there's just... Yeah, it's kind of malevolent. It's kind of cruel. Whereas these ones are just kind of less cruel, I think, because of the era in which they exist. But yeah, I'm fairly certain this school was like Dahl's inspiration for the school in Matilda. But anyway, he goes from one private school to another private school. Now, they're called public schools. I don't know why specifically. There's probably a reason for that. Again, DM me. Or tweet at me. It's fine. Um, but he ends up being transferred to St. Peter's in Western Supermare. And so he has to go by ferry, which is like just across the Bristol Channel. 
So it's like really close. Like the distance between like Bristol and Cardiff is pretty close. Because if you're flying into Wales, it's actually usually easier to just fly into Bristol and like get the bus over. But yeah, at this point he would have used the ferry and he was in this boarding school and he absolutely hated it. He despised this place. And he would write letters home to his mum, right? But like he wouldn't let her know that he absolutely detested this school. And he only found out, like after she passes away, that she kept like every single one of their letters. That's like my mum. My mum keeps like every single card I have ever gotten her. Like every single one. There's boxes of them. Which is rubbed off on me a wee bit. I love cards. Like I got this amazing sidebar. I got this amazing card from like Salem. It was actually somebody's first ever piece of fan mail they've written anybody. And I loved it. I think it was one of if not the first piece of fan mail I ever received and it was this card from Salem and it had this just wonderful beautiful handwriting by the way wonderful cursive all the way through it and it was amazing I love it and it's it's going up in pride and place when I actually eventually build my pod loft and start doing things there instead of haphazardly recording things in a bedroom with a broken window so if you hear the wind in the background, I'm sorry. It's very stormy and I've padded it up the best I can. The duct tape ain't doing the job these days. But anyway, when Dallas 13, he ends up going to Repton School in Derbyshire. And it is just as bad as you can expect a secondary school for rich people to be. Because there's like hazing and just all that kind of nonsense. And it's very much like hierarchical and there's corporal punishment. And Dal, again, absolutely detests this kind of thing. And he completely hates the mistreatment. And again, this sort of serves for inspiration for a few things later on. But like he just can't stand corporal punishment. Now academically, he's okay. Like things are fine. Like, he's not standing out in any capacity. And, like, even his teachers are, like, mad at the fact that when he writes things down, they don't quite make sense because the words he's using don't align with what he's trying to say. But I think that's just his mind. But while he's there anyway, he just starts growing. To the point where he actually gets... um, he gets to six foot six inches. He's six and a half feet tall. That is, that is, I know of someone who is six foot seven and uh, every time I'm walking beside him, I'm like a chihuahua walking next to a horse. Like, my wee legs are trying to keep up. So, Dal is massive. Maybe that's why he kept trying to make huge things in his book. Like, let me tell you about this peach. What about it? It's fucking huge. So he's just so tall. And so generally quite good for the old sports to have a massive fella there. So he's playing like like squash and golf and football and cricket. And he's just kind of delving into everything. I'm not surprised cricket was involved because, you know, rich white people in cricket just seems to be a thing. I mean, I know, like, India plays cricket, but that's just because they were colonised, so. But they do keep beating England at it, which is really, really funny. You know that game you forced us to play? Yeah, well, now we're kicking your ass at it, so you're welcome. So while he's at this school in Reptum, he ends up being sent chocolate to test, so like Cadbury's would send chocolate to the school full of rich boys. Not to, like, you know, schools with people who aren't rich, maybe. Would be nice to get them to test the chocolate. No? Okay. But again, being, like, sent lots of chocolate seems to me, you know, in an era where it wasn't so available, seems like a little bit of inspiration. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. 
So he would spend all of the academic year at school and then his summers he would spend in Norway with his mother's family. Don't know much about his father's side, if there was any connection there, but definitely, definitely with his mum's side. And he's like really, really close to his mum. Like, I mean, it'd be hard not to, considering, you know, like the sudden loss of his father and the loss of his sister, it would have made his mum more connected to him. You know, he probably reminded her of his dad, you know? So in 1934, he finishes school and he joins the public school's exploring society. And he ends up going to Nova Scotia and hiking through Newfoundland and Canada, like with his grip. And after he does that, he gets a job with the Shell Petroleum Company. So he gets trained in the UK and then heads over to Mombasa in Kenya. And then he ends up in Dar es Salaam, um, which is basically this British colony in Tanzania. So there's him and then two other English fellas who are working in Dar es Salaam and they're living just like, just outside it, in this house owned by Shell. (laughs) And they've got a cook and personal servants. Like, they have servants. Like, cool. Cool, this is fun. And so he's working there for the next five years. At which, um, the Second World War, you know, is coming up on the horizon. And there's a fuck ton of German people living in Dar es Salaam. So Roldal gets commissioned as a lieutenant into the King's African Rifles. So within the King's African Rifles, there are like indigenous people, like part of that, um, the Ascari, I think it is. And Dal ends up with a platoon of Ascari. They're all part of this colonial army and it's up to them to sort of round up all of these German people in Dar es Salaam. I think one of the reasons he ended up with this gig specifically is because he learned Swahili while he was in Africa. But yeah, he's with this East African regiment for like a couple of months And then in November that year, he decides he's going to join the RAF. And he drives, was it 600 miles? Was it 970 kilometers? Math. So yeah, he drives from Dar es Salaam to Nairobi. And so he goes, gets accepted for flight training, um, becomes an aircraftman. Aircraftman. Why did I say it like that? I don't know an aircraftman and he ends up flying effectively obsolete uh gladiators the the the, the Gloucester gladiators they're they're not they're not the most tip top of you know aircraft but that's what he gets to and so he didn't really get any like special training in like aerial combat like he had flight errors and stuff Like, he had flown over, sort of, like, Iraq and Kenya and all this kind of stuff. Like, he trained on, what was it, Hawker Hearts? I want to say Hawker Hearts because I'm not, I'm not too up on aircraft or machinery that was used in wars because I find them um, quite boring. And I just, uh, oh, you want to tell me about the Panzerkampfwagen? You want to tell me about the Panzerkampfwagen? I don't give a fuck about the Panzerkampfwagen, my friend. Unless we're talking about the manual featuring Elvira. That is that is what we're talking about. I don't care about tanks. They mean nothing to me. Your machines mean nothing. I don't even know types of cars. Like, what kind of car is it? I'm like, I don't know. Blue? Like, gets me from A to B, mate. Is it high off the ground, low off the ground? Like, I'm like, it's an estate. And it's like, not an estate. It's a people carrier. I don't know the difference. They both carry people. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, so yeah, when he finally gets to number 80 squadron, he's flying fucking biplanes, right? He's, um, he's, doesn't really get any like specialist aerial combat training. 
and also they're fucking biplanes. So he's he's flying um, to an airstrip, what was it, just south of Mersamatra. And he couldn't find the airstrip. He couldn't find it. And it's dark. You know, he's running out of fuel. And he's trying to, you know, land it. And that doesn't quite work in his favour. Because um, instead of landing it, he crashes it. He hits a bloody boulder. As it turns out, Dal had been given the wrong coordinates. They sent him to the wrong place. So instead of going to the airstrip, they sent him to no man's land between, like, Italian and Allied forces. Like, he's lucky that he ended up where he ended up. But yeah, he crashes this bloody biplane and he ends up with a crushed skull, a broken nose, and he's temporarily blinded. And he crawls out of the burning wreckage of this tinfoil plane. And then darkness. I mean, it's already darkness because he's blind, but he just, unconscious. He ended up in a coma. Luckily for him, he was rescued and he gets brought to this first aid post in Mersamatra. And so, like, he finally comes to, but he still can't see shit. And they're like, this is worse than we expected. And he gets sent to the Royal Navy Hospital in Alexandria. So he gets sent there by train. And there's every possibility that he got, like, plastic surgery there because of his nose. It's a very maybe thing. Because it's a very polished nose. It's very... mm. And I don't know if that was the work of a plastic surgeon like he claims it was. But Roldal uh, is a storyteller. He's known for telling tall tales. So, like, he said that he was shot down over Libya. He was not... He crash-landed. Like, mate, no. So this entire crash, it actually causes, like, so many issues throughout his life. Like, he needs two spinal surgeries. He needs both of his hips replaced. I think one happens earlier and the other one happens, like, later on in his life. But he ends up with two, like, steel hips, eventually. But yeah, he's at this this Royal Navy Hospital and he is just infatuated with Mary Welland who's this nurse and he's falling in love with her and out of love with her and like well they won't they uh spoiler alert they won't but anyway luckily for Dal by 1941 February nice and early he is just discharged from hospital and is a-okay and by A-OK, I mean, they say, you can get in a plane again, boy. So he is given the all clear. You are good to go. Get in that plane, buddy. So he's cleared. He's cleared for flying. And so he does. So the 80 Squadron, the one that he was part of, they were no longer by Mersamatra. They were part of the Greek campaign. So they're close to Athens, I think. So instead of, you know... The biplanes, they're in Hawker Hurricanes. Because so many of these have alliteration. Hawker Hurricanes, Gloucester Gladiators, so on and so forth. But yeah, Dal ends up flying to Greece because like, they don't have enough like combat planes. Like They've got less than 20, right? They've not many at all. So he's flying planes out. So that's what he's doing. So he flies in as we plane. So Dal, he ends up, well, getting rid of a few Axis bombers. He's doing his thing. And then later on in the year, he takes part in the Battle of Athens. And this is just chaos. It's pure chaos. And 22 German bombers, like, go down. But there's only, like, 12 hurricanes and they lose five of them. One pilot survives, the other four just... They're gone. But, like, because of this chaos, like, they don't actually know if they've shot down one of their own or one of, like, the enemy. It's just, just planes are just going past each other and they're just hoping for the best, right? They're just hoping they recognise the right one. 
And I think this is one of the last, if not the last battle that Dal is in because he starts getting headaches. Headaches that are so severe that he is blacking out. Clearly, that initial crash did something dodgy to his head. Now, there's there's a theory that like it affected the frontal lobe, um, which is the one which is for decision making, you know, the, the, the rational part of your brain. Now, I feel like having a severe head injury and then going up to an area where there was massive pressure up in the sky, you know, when you're like moving really fast and it's doing like discombobulating things to your body, probably not conducive to like healthy brain shit, you know? Yeah. So Dal is uncleared for duty and ends up being sent home. To the UK. Back in England, he is posted to an RAF training camp in Uxbridge. Now he is trying to get to a level of health that he can be an instructor. Effectively, no blacking out, you know, generally a good way to be. But he ends up meeting the Under Secretary of State for Air. Major Harold Balfour, because, you know, he's at one of his fancy man's clubs. And Harold Balfour, he, he likes Dal. He thinks he's clever, he's good at chatting, and he's got a fairly decent war record. And so he thinks, hmm, this is just the ticket. And he appoints him as the assistant air attaché at the British Embassy in Washington. And Dal is like, I don't want to do that. I want to I want to train people to fly planes to fight this war. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes me a bit of convincing, but he ends up going. So he ends up heading to Glasgow and then traveling over to Halifax in Canada. Um, just basically going on a ship across the Atlantic Ocean. And then he gets there and gets on a sleeper train to Montreal. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So when Dowley leaves the UK, it's rationing. So people would have a ration book and you would have an amount of stamps in it where you could get like the food that you, you were allocated. So everything was rationed out. Which is why I might add that the reason that that wee fella sold his entire family out in the line watching the wardrobe for a Turkish delight, which people are just like, they're not that good. Wartime rationing. They're making people eat carrots as a treat. Mmm, carrot on a stick. Food propaganda. And this is sugar to a child who has been starving you know fucking yes he's gonna sell everybody out for some Turkish delight could you imagine if they gave him a biscuit he would he would have been yep there you go bye bye so in the UK there's food rationing you know people are eating relatively plainly even the elites it's relatively plain in comparison to what they're used to and so he gets to the he gets to America and there's food. There's an abundance of food. 
and delicious, interesting, high-class food. Like, and Dal gets to Washington, D.C., and he is not happy. Like, he ends up sharing a house in Georgetown, and he's there for, like, ten days, and he is mad. Like, he's telling people that, like, he's got the worst job, it's so unimportant, and, you know, because he's just come from war. He was doing this, he was doing this, he was battling, he was doing important stuff and like just living horror because his life is if he doesn't have enough of it. Like, not think you've had enough horror in your life, Rold? No. All right then. And he's sharing this house with another attache, right? And the two of them, I don't know if they get on, but I'm thinking heads were butted. Because like, Dal has arrived like not long after Pearl Harbor. Like, there's, like, a couple of months, I think, in between. It's not, it's not a huge amount. And he gets there, and it's just, how about this, like, it's a different form of chaos. Because he's now, sort of, around all of these, like, higher society people in the States. He's going to cocktail parties and meetings, and he ends up integrating himself with society, right? Or, you know, high society, and Dal ends up hobnobbing just the right people, and he gets recruited by British intelligence. And a bunch of other sort of entertainers, they're all part of this, but they're nicknamed the Baker Street Irregulars after the Irregulars, the sort of little spy network in Sherlock Holmes. So effectively, they were already in the States, a lot of them, the whole purpose was to kind of like gently nudge the US to like join the war. It was less of an effort after Pearl Harbor, but they were still there. And they wanted to create British propaganda, or at least war propaganda. And so it was at CS Forrester ends up recruiting Dahl to write for the Sunday Post about, you know, like his crash and his time in the Air Force. And so this is where he starts saying that he was shot down over Libya. Because he's trying to, like, garner sympathy and, you know, all this stuff for the war effort. So, he becomes a spy. Like, this is madness. Because, like, they're spies. But not the kind of spies that, like, stabby stabby. No, 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 no. They're the kind of spies that are there to make friends. To charm and influence. And, you know, shag. You know the spy who shagged me? That's the spy who shagged me. Not me, specifically. I mean, I'm fairly certain. Am I fairly certain I've never shagged a spy? Like, they would have some pretty shitty covers if they did. Like, really? Like, yeah. No. 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 So, the regulars, they... <laughs> Other irregulars consist of Ian Fleming, yes, the dude who wrote James Bond, Noel Coward, Leslie Howard, um, Ashley from Gone with the Wind, and Sir William Stevenson, who was like the actual inspiration for James Bond. So yeah, they're all they're all together. So the main mission was to like charm and influence and befriend all of these like influential and important people in the US and you know convince them to invest support and or join the war effort now if that didn't work if that didn't quite pan out for them they were to um garner enough sort of evidence to blackmail them into it, effectively. They were like, um, like, we're gonna either, like, carrot or stick you. Fucking carrot's back again. Oh, the carrot of war. So, yeah. Um, this is where Roald Dahl's penis comes into it. I just, yep, I don't, I don't know how else to, like, bring this up. Um, he did it often enough. Now, Dahl was known as a ladies' man anyway, right? And he ends up um, being the toy boy for Claire Boothluce. So Claire Boothluce, she is a Republican Congresswoman and 
More importantly, surprisingly, the wife of the owner of Time, Life and Fortune magazines. So yeah, she's married to Henry Lewis. He's like this um, anti-British isolationist, really. And and yeah, I mean, considering considering that, considering he didn't want to be involved in this and that he didn't like Britain and would probably be against that, I guess boinking his wife was a very incredibly super important spy mission. However, my favourite part of this story is like, this lasts a couple days. Like, Dal is with Claire Boothloose for a couple of days. And Dal cannot handle her libido. Like, he just, he just can't. He ends up calling his superiors. He phones them up. And he is begging to abort the mission. He, he, he wants to, like, get out of the project. He wants out of it. He wants to just... He's no, he's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers. He wants out, out of her and out of this whole plan. Like, actual quote, actual quote from him. <clears throat> I'm going to try and give him a posh English voice. I'm going to do my best here. Okay. <clears throat> Rodal. I am all fucked out. That goddamn woman has absolutely screwed me from one end of the room to the other for three goddamn nights. Now this may shock you, gentle listener, but Roald Dahl's superiors were like, tough luck, uh, just, just lie back, think of England, you know what I mean? Like, you're literally doing this for your country. The red, white and the blue. It's England who's asking. <laughs> uh, yeah, any chance to throw a Grease 2 lyric in there, and I mean, I paraphrase, but like, is it? It's a parody, technically. It's fine. So yeah, he's, you know, he has to do it for his country. Which is funny considering he's already a literal war hero. But yeah. So I, I, I don't know what happened. This man has had surgeries. He's had his face caved in. And, you know, he's seen his friends die. What was this woman doing to him? Like, like what? So he's he's doing this work for MI6 as part of the uh, British security coordination. And, um, yeah, he ends up being sent back to Britain by the embassy officials um, because of, quote-unquote, misconduct. Now, although I feel whatever he did, he did it deliberately. He was just like, my Wally Wonka can't take it anymore, Captain. It doesn't have the power. Yeah, so he ends up being sent back back to Britain from the agency. They're just like, no, nah, we can't be dealing with him anymore. So he must have fucked something up royally. You know what I mean? And now I don't know if this was a petty move or not, but like he gets booted back to England and then one of the um the spy masters, he sends him back to Washington, but he promotes him. So he's now a wing commander. So after this, um, he's got like this temporary wing commander role and ends up with squadron leader with five aerial victories, so he's technically a flying ace. But yeah, the war ends and uh, he has some time, some time on his hands. Now he says that, you know, he got like the air crash and it suddenly made him write things, which is one way of putting it. Or, now you don't have a full-time occupation distracting you and you have more time to write things. Now, somewhere along the way, ladies' man Rodal meets, courts and marries Patricia O'Neill, who was an American actress. And they get married in 1953 and they end up having five children together. So there's... Olivia Twenty, Chantal Sophia, Theo Matthew, Ophelia Magdalena, and Lucy Neal. So they're married for seven years, and in 1960, their four month old son Theo was incredibly injured when his 
baby carriage as the old pram gets hit by a taxi in New York. So because of this, he suffers from hydrocephalus, which is a buildup of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain. And so Dal ends up part of a team who designed this um, like valve, right? So it's the Wade Dal Till valve. So it's this sort of shunt, which is used to like sort of, you know, reduce all of this fucking fluid in the brain, right? And so this extra valve just makes all the difference. So it's this like weird collaboration between um, Ormond Street Hospital, uh, there's a neurosurgeon there called Kenneth Till, there's a hydraulic engineer, Stanley Wade, and then writer Roald Dahl. So during this time, Roald Dahl is writing books. He starts telling his kids stories and he's writing books. And he does this. Now, Dahl is a six foot six man. And his attitudes and his personality, he's quite domineering. Is it because he's part Norwegian? Is it because he went to like public school? Is it because he's a rich white dude? Who's to say? Was it because of the accident? Also, maybe. Or he could just be, you know, a misogynist. Read the witches, you know what I mean. Anyway, and this is from someone who actually quite enjoys Roald Dahl books. I loved them growing up. My favourite is still George's Marvelous Medicine. Don't care if it's short. Don't care if it's mainly a poem. I love it, right? Love it. So basically this shunt, um, or this valve in the shunt, is used like on like 3,000 kids like across the world. It's pretty good. Now Dal, bit of a control freak, uh, likes to be in charge, likes to be in control. And so that's one of the reasons why he's involved in this. Like obviously he wants to care for his kid, or at least we hope. He does. He does. Yeah. But he's needs this control. Like he's he's a domineering figure. I mean he's also massive, which kind of exacerbates it a wee bit. But he has to be, he has to lead the charge on this. So, remember when I said earlier that his life was marred by tragedy? Well, I'm not done. So his daughter, Olivia, who was born in 1955, she is seven years old and she dies of measles. Purely preventable disease. That's why we have a vaccine for it. Vaccinate your fucking kids. Don't be cunts. Right? I don't care. So, yes, where am I now? Dal is fucking distraught because his daughter, his firstborn child, she's dead and she died at seven, just like his sister. Like, that's. He's gonna make that connection, you know? And, I mean, they're not his fault and they're not really connected but he will make that connection in his brain because that's what we do as humans we create patterns even when there are none and so he is just wallowing in despair but he has to do something because this is not a man who can sit down and do nothing so he ends up becomes like a massive supporter for like vaccination and immunization um and he writes um measles a dangerous illness like he does this whole like response for measles cases in the uk like all through the 80s and he is fighting to save lives like just through another medium now so it's actually his daughter's death like everything else in his life everything he's been through he still had faith and here is where he loses his... I'm going to try not get emotional. I'm, no, I can't. I'm already emotional. So he goes to see um, just a member of the clergy. I don't know if it's like the Archbishop of Canterbury or, or some archbishop. And he goes to see him. And he's informed that 
Olivia will get into heaven. But her beloved pet, her favourite thing in this world, wouldn't join her. And we all know all dogs go to heaven. Imagine telling that to a grieving father that like, oh yeah, no, yeah, your daughter's going to be in the afterlife, but not with anything that brings her joy. Like, like that's going to crush you. It's going to crush you. Oh my God, Katie, stop feeling feelings. Ugh, no. Anyway, so he is... Did you think I was done with tragedy? Did you think I was done? Oh no, my friends. Three years after he loses his daughter, his wife, Patricia, she has a series of cerebral aneurysms. So she has these strokes, you know, and while she's pregnant with their fifth and final child, Lucy. And she just suffers these strokes. And Dal, being the man he is, he takes charge of care and rehabilitation. And he just starts pushing her and he's really harsh about it. Now, at this time, in this time period, like we were unaware that, or the general populace was unaware that the best thing you can do for a stroke victim is to sort of push them and try and get them to do things as quickly as possible in order to sort of refire that and get them moving again and do their little um like squeezy handball stuff. So I'm trying to think of the stuff my mum did after her stroke, like all the the sort of things, the exercises and, and all the rehab. But he is like really forcing her and pushing her but he didn't know that that was actually going to help. Now that on its own you know doesn't really make you judge his character too much like maybe he had an idea or a theory and thought this was the right way to do it. But then but then as it turns out like after she has the stroke he starts talking to her like she's a child, like treats her like she's a child. Uh, he would make her repeat things in front of people. It would be like, really humiliating. Like if she said something wrong, he would make her redo it in front of everyone. Not, not just on her own, not, you know, not in a caring way, but it was quite aggressive and demanding. And he would talk about her like not like behind her back or anything, but as if she wasn't there. So he would talk about her as if she wasn't in the room. And again, still thinking, well, you know, it's in the olden days. It's not that bad. Well, well. Seven years later, Dal is writing his books. He's doing very well for himself. Patricia, she's back acting. And there's, was it a costume designer? Set designer. A set designer um, for a Maxim coffee advert. And Patricia's in it. And this is where Dal meets Felicity de Blue Cosland. And she is, like, vaguely related to the Queen Mother, I think. And so they start this 11-year affair. Like, and he thinks they can, like, hide it from everybody. He's out writing in his garden shed. You know, he's doing stuff. He's publishing his books. She's doing, I assume, set designer things. Patricia's acting. All the while, Felicity was actually Patricia's friend. Or supposed friend. And to make matters worse, I think this is just, just a sly thing to do. Is that the way the BFG speaks is based on Patricia O'Neill um, recovering from a stroke. Like, I don't know how to put that. Like, that is somehow petty and vindictive in a way that just arcs me. I am arced. Well and truly arced. So, when Dal's daughter is 15... Like, she 
find out about the affair. And Dal basically sits her down and tells her that, well, she can, you know, destroy her mother. Her mother who had strokes. Her mother who barely survived. You can destroy her life and ruin her marriage and ruin this family. Or you can keep your mouth shut. Like, what horrible arsehole emotionally blackmails his child into covering up for his horrific acts? Like, who does that? Like, I'm sorry, but that's, that's reprehensible. I'm, mm, it's fucking bollocks. But anyway, surprise, surprise, the truth will out, it always does, and Patricia and Roldal end up divorcing. In 1983, they get divorced, and then Dal marries Felicity, like, the same year, just out with the old, in with the new. So, like, after he's married to Felicity, and, like, she moves into his house, and Patricia's kicked out, he ends up being offered an OBE, right? And he denies it, he doesn't want it. Not for any other reason than he wants a knighthood. Like, he wants to be knighted so that he can be, you know, sir and she can be, you know, Lady Dal. Like, okay. Okay. Punching up a wee bit, mate. Just a wee bit. And Dal, being the man he is, cannot stop being controversial. So he ends up making this very anti-Israel statement and it's, how do I put it, it's, it's very strange though because like his editor was Jewish, his publisher was Jewish, I'm fairly certain like he just had lots of Jewish people like within his business circle and he was seeing this very uh, sort of anti-Semitic anti-Zionist like it's they're interlinked and interwoven I don't think there's any way to separate them when it comes to Dal but he says these things and is it because he's drunk and wants to cause a scene or is it because this is what he really believes like it doesn't matter either way because it's still an absolutely shitty thing to do but he basically says these really anti-Israel statements like Especially at the time. Like, it was just... Meanwhile, he's still writing. He's, you know, he's he's really mad that he's known for being a children's author, even though that's, like, the majority of his appeal. But he writes, um, like, stuff for TV, actually. He does Tales of the Unexpected, which is, listen, fab. Absolutely fab. I love Tales of the Unexpected, but I like old things. That's why I like history and my romantic partner. So, <laughs> if you're listening to this, hey, honey. <laughs> you're older than me. Get over it. <laughs> anyway, um, so, there's uh, a... The, oh, yeah. Like, I always forget that Rodal wrote the screenplay for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Like... I always remember Ian Fleming as part of it because it's like the guy who wrote James Bond. You know, it's it's wild. But he writes like so many things. Like, what have I got now? Um, oh yeah, the screenplay for You Only Love Twice. The James Bond movie. He wrote the screenplay. Because of course he did. And so like Jack and Ori and uh, The Book Tower... I, I think a few of his stories ended up in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Just lots, lots and lots of stuff. Well, they do say that what doesn't kill you gives you trauma, and trauma gives you inspiration to be either funny or talented. I'm not sure I'm either of those. But yeah, he ends up, well, living this very long life. Has a rather unpleasant end. Roldal ends up suffering from this very rare blood cancer. It's um, myelodysplastic syndrome. That took me three attempts to try and say it even that poorly. So it's this very rare blood cancer and... It's actually relatively swift because it's the type of cancer it is. 
and at the age of 74 years old, Rodal passes away on the 23rd of November 1990. And when he's buried, like when his family lay him to the ground, he is buried with just things in life that are important to him or were important to him. Uh, sort of like a Viking funeral is what they said. It's what I think it's what the I think Sophie Dahl said. So there's like wine and chocolate and a pool cue or a snooker cue. Are they the same cue? I mean, uh, a power saw as well. I don't know the relevance of the power saw, but yeah. And he is buried in the. Church of St. Peter and Paul in Buckinghamshire. And like even to this day, people leave things on his grave. So they would be like flowers and toys and all that kind of stuff. Um, just because, yeah, he inspired worlds. He created worlds that I think in a way prepared children for the harshness that's out there. Like, my kids struggled initially with Roald Dahl books. Um, I think you need to be a certain age to start reading them and listening to them. Because there are so many cruel characters and there's just abuse in them. There's, like, lots of abuse. And it can very easily affect, like, small children especially. So when I started reading to them, I kind of had to wait till they were older because they just didn't like the way people were being mistreated in the books and that was them they were like I don't like this and I was like okay because like I was desperate to read Matilda to them um and now I have them like really into it and they want to make like Bruce Brog Trotter's like chocolate cake but um Roald Dahl is one of those I think you know when they talk about separating art from the artist um you kind of can but kind of can't because of like all the trauma that's like built into Roald Dahl's books comes from Roald Dahl. And to completely contradict what I just said, I think it's fine to separate the art from the artist if that artist is dead and can no longer monetize it and can no longer make money or a living from their, you know, horrible viewpoints and terrible things they did. And Roald Dahl has been dead for well over five years, so I am more than happy to continue reading his stories. Um, but it does mean you have to bring in a lot of explanations to your children, and that's on you as a parent if you're reading it. If you're not a parent, not really relevant. I don't know, maybe you read it to yourself. Maybe you read it to your pet iguana. Maybe your iguana really likes children's stories. I'm not here to judge an iguana. They do their own thing. But yes, that is the story of Roald Dahl, beloved children's author. And the man whose portrait hangs in the gallery of all your faves are problematic. But yeah, that is that is this week's tale. Now, if you liked my retelling, um, feel free to rate and review five stars, especially considering the fact that I'm actually having much trouble speaking. My tongue and my jaw are so sore. And also, um, if you'd like to vote for me in the Irish Podcast Awards, listener's choice, you just click on the link down below, um, look up who did what now, click on my logo, put in your email, and then like respond to that email with a wee clicky button, just to make sure, it's more to make sure people aren't like multi-voting and things. So if you would like to do that, that would be totally amazing, because I would like to just <laughs> annoy, <laughs> annoy the hell out of like the sun <laughs> by like doing well in it. And I am going to go for recommendation time for listening. I am going to suggest uh, the Busted Greatest Hits album on Spotify. Um, all of all of the feminism left my body listening to Busted. Because uh, it's, it's not... Some of the lyrics are downright dodgy, but I do like the, all the swears around there now, so I'm quite happy. And... Just the music's so good. And also, there's a, a sort of a guest version where Bowling for Soup, 
saying she wants to be me with them. I, it's so good. It's so perfect. It's perfect. I love it so much. Um, and not just because I love bowling for Sip. Also, for Sip, on behalf of Sip, or to gain Sip. It's not, that's not the point. That's a moot point. Uh, for watching uh, Wilderness. Watch Wilderness on Prime. Just to love you. Oh, yes. Watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. And, um, and for reading, I'm going to go with a wee whodunit. Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club. Okay, now that that's sorted, I am going to wish you good night. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Uh, bye-bye.